would appreciate your prayers this week. Um, Pastor Steer and myself and Linda will uh, be in Houston for the meeting of the General Assembly, the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, pray that I behave and um, pray that the, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ marches on. Let me ask you to uh, open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. Now you're going to have to stay with me this morning. I'm going to cover a lot. And at first, it won't be very exciting. In fact, it probably will be somewhat depressing. But this is the truth of God's Word. This is the truth that the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, that God has given us these Old Testament Scriptures. He's given us this history that we might be instructed and that we might be encouraged. And my prayer is that both those things might prove true today, that we will be instructed and, by God's grace, encouraged. Let me read for you this, right this moment. Just look it down at verse 21. Let me read verses 21, 22, and 23. You remember we talked last week, David followed by Solomon, Solomon followed by Rehoboam. Rehoboam provoking a revolt in the kingdom so that the Davidic kingdom is divided into the northern ten tribes of Israel and the southern two tribes of Judah. It is over the northern ten tribes of Israel that the man mentioned here, Jeroboam, reigns as king. And this is what we read. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Let's pray. Father, speak to us now from your holy word. I pray that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts, that you would turn us towards you, that we would be both instructed and encouraged. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the days when I used to paint the interior walls in our house, um, I liked to use either a six-inch brush or rollers. I mean, the truth be told, I would really have preferred to use a spray gun. Um, Linda now prefers that I not paint. Uh, she claims that I'm too messy. Well, this is gonna be a little messy this morning. I'm going to paint for you quickly 300 years of history that begin with David in 1000 B.C. and 
climax with the annihilation of Israel in 722 BC. I've placed in the bulletin a list of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, that kingdom coming to an end, 722 BC. As we saw last week, going back to David, under the United Kingdom, all 12 tribes ruled by David, we saw that under David, because of David's sin, the downward spiral of this united kingdom, these united 12 tribes, the, the downward spiral of that kingdom began. Solomon, turning from the Lord, just pushed the whole thing forward or downward more quickly. In fact, the Lord comes to Solomon and tells him, the kingdom is going to be torn from you, and I'm going to give, I'm going to give it to one of your servants. That servant's name was Jeroboam. And it was to Jeroboam, unknown to Solomon, privately, a prophet of the Lord comes to Jeroboam, a servant of the king. And he tells Jeroboam, that the Lord is going to tear from Solomon the kingdom and that he, Jeroboam, a servant, a lowly servant, he, Jeroboam, will become king over those northern ten tribes. Now, no one knows that except the prophet and Jeroboam. Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam becomes king. It's not good news, sorry. I mean, we're told in 2 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 14 that Rehoboam did evil, the son of Solomon, probably following the example of daddy in his daddy's last 20 years of reign, Rehoboam did evil. His heart was not set to seek after the Lord. Early in his reign, Rehoboam, is approached by Jeroboam and a group of others who come before the king to ask if he would not reduce the harsh taxes that Solomon had levied upon the people. But arrogantly, Rehoboam responds by telling Jeroboam and his companions, I'm not going to lower the taxes, I'm going to raise them. And in response, a response we're told in the book of Kings, a response that was determined by the Lord. In response, the 10 northern tribes led by Jeroboam separate from the house of David. And these 10 tribes become known as Israel, the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And Jeroboam, once a servant of Solomon, Jeroboam now becomes king of Israel. To Rehoboam in the south, to Rehoboam, to, to Rehoboam and the house of David are left only two tribes, the little tribe of Benjamin and the dominant tribe of Judah. Now you also need to know that, that way back near the end of Solomon's reign, when the prophet first came to talk to Jeroboam, the prophet told Jeroboam that if he would walk in the way of the Lord, 
if he would listen to the Lord and, and walk in his way, that the Lord would build for Jeroboam a dynasty as he had built for David. But in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 33, we are told that Jeroboam, upon becoming king, I mean, the prophet told him, this is what's going to happen. He has seen it happen. Now he is king over the northern ten tribes. The prophet has told him, if you will listen to the Lord and walk in his way, I will build for you a dynasty, even as I built one for David. But this is what we are told. Jeroboam becomes king. He makes two golden calves. Sound familiar? Golden calves? He makes two golden calves for his people to worship. He does that so that they won't keep returning to Jerusalem located in Judah, so that they won't keep returning to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. He ordains as priests men who are not of the tribe of Levi, from which tribe all priests were supposed to come. And he appoints for the people feast days to be observed in place of the feast days observed in Judah. He makes golden calves, he appoints priests, he, he, he establishes, he, he appoints feast days, all of his own making, all of his own imagination. Instead of following the Lord, he is going to walk in his way, he's going to walk in the way that Jeroboam wants to walk, and he's going to do his own thing without any concern or regard for who the Lord is or for what the Lord wants. 1 Kings 12, 30, I find incredibly sobering. This is what we're told. We're told that because Jeroboam sinned, it encouraged his people to sin. Because Jeroboam turned his back upon the Lord and walked the path of his own choosing, his people likewise. The people of the 10 northern tribes of Israel. Most of them, not all, but the vast majority of them turned their back upon the Lord and they followed a path of their own choosing. For the next 200 years, see that list of kings? For the next 200, king, uh, 200 years, this is what we're told. Every king who reigns, who rules over the northern kingdom of Israel sinned as Jeroboam sinned. They worshiped false gods instead of the Lord. They adhered to the teachings of the nations around them instead of the revealed truth of the Lord. They embraced the immoral, immoral lifestyles of other nations instead of striving in the Lord's strength to be his holy people. The consequences of the sins of Jeroboam and his successor, of Jeroboam and his successors is that the people likewise sinned. And as a consequence, you see the bold lines there in that list of kings that I've given you? As a consequence, the northern kingdom of Israel experienced 200 years of turmoil 
It does matter who the leader is. 200 years of turmoil. There will be eight bloody revolts during these 200 years. 19 kings from nine different families will claim the throne. And all of them will be ungodly men. Now, in contrast, we'll talk more about this later, not this morning, but in contrast, it's only the house of David that, that rules over the southern kingdom of Judah. But I have to quickly add, most of the kings of Judah were just so-so. A, a, few, uh, a few more were probably, uh, a few more proved to be utterly ungodly. And only about four of the kings of Judah would qualify as our thinking of them as godly men. But only the house of David will rule over the southern kingdom of Judah. Why? Why? I mean, it's not because they're all good. By God's grace, they're not all bad. But why? Only the house of David ruling over the southern kingdom of Judah. Because God has made a promise. I will give to David an eternal kingdom. And over that kingdom, a son of David will rule forever. Now, look at 2 Kings chapter 17. We've read verses 21 through 23, which tell us, which just really sweep the whole, just give us a a sweeping picture of the whole 210 years, beginning with Jeroboam and ending with the northern kingdom of Israel being annihilated by the Assyrian Empire. Now, I can't take the time, you'll be relieved to know, to rehearse the details of each of these 19 kings. Um, but in 2 Kings 17, verses 7 through 20, we have a summary of the consequences of the people being ruled by kings who sinned as Jeroboam sinned. Verses seven through 12, we're told the people chose to sin against the Lord, against the Lord. Notice, look at what it says if you have your Bibles open. They chose to sin against the Lord who had graciously and mercifully delivered their ancestors out of Egypt. Ah, oh, forget that, that's ancient history. We're moving on. Seems to have been the attitude of their hearts. Instead of living in holy awe of the Lord, they feared other gods. And they chose to embrace the sinful customs of the people, of the very people that the Lord had driven out before them when they first entered the promised land. It's just, it's stunning, really. It's just stunning. Look at verse 13. 2 Kings 17, verse 13. The Lord, the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets, for 200 years. Repent, turn to the Lord, the Lord who delivered your ancestors out of Egypt, who brought you into this promised land. 
But verse 14, they would not listen. They were as stubborn as their fathers had been, who also had not believed in the Lord their God. We'll get to that in a moment. Consequently, look at verses 15 through 17. They, the people despised the Lord's statutes and his covenants. They, they went after false idols, and look at what it says. They went after false idols, and they became false. Wow. They embraced the ways of the nations around them. They abandoned the Lord's commandments. They, they worshiped Asherah. Asherah would fit right into 21st century America. The worship of Asherah involved your being involved in illicit sexual relationships. Asherah was a sex goddess, and they gladly chose to worship her. They even offered up their children in sacrifice to appease these demonic gods that they now feared. Of course, we would insist we don't offer up our children in sacrifice, so don't we? Don't we? Don't we? Many have offered up 50 million or more of our children in sacrifice to appease their own wants and their own desires. Verse 17. They sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Doing so, verse 17, they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 18, the Lord was very angry with Israel. I mean, isn't that disturbing language? I told you this was kind of depressing. The Lord was very angry with Israel. His covenant people. Not very angry with Assyria, not very angry with Babylon, not very angry with, with Egypt. He was very angry with Israel. I told you, I'm not preaching to a general audience. This is not a political sermon. I'm preaching to the church of Jesus Christ, the covenant people of God. At this moment, in history. Very angry with Israel, remove them out of his sight. Look at verse 20. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. Take a breath. I need a breath. need a drink of water. <laughs> I told you it was kind of depressing. I mean, it's not kind of depressing. It's terribly depressing. Why would the Lord, why doesn't the Lord record for us once upon a time and they lived happily ever after? Because this is life. Because this is true. Because this isn't a fairy tale. Because he wants us to know these things that we might be instructed, if you will, that we might 
be warned, to understand. He's not playing a game with us. Now, let me quickly say this. Follow this, please. In our study of the Old Testament, we have seen repeatedly that the Lord is gracious and that he is merciful and that he is loving. He graciously and mercifully and lovingly entered into a covenant with Adam, into a covenant with this man who has just rebelled against him. And the Lord graciously and mercifully and lovingly enters into a covenant with, with rebellious Adam, a covenant of redemption promising that a man born of woman would, would crush beneath his feet the head of the evil one. And throughout the Old Testament, that covenant of redemption, first established with, with Adam, it, it continuously unfolds and progresses before our eyes. It's there in all of its glory. God, God comes and he promises Noah that life will continue upon the earth. Therefore, assuring that his covenant promise to Adam of a man born of woman, that that covenant promise would be fulfilled. The Lord promised Abraham that through his seed, all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Lord delivered Abraham's descendants out of Egypt, and he gave them his written law. It taught them how to live and it provided for them sacrifices to atone for their sins when they failed to keep his commandments. And then the Lord, extending that covenant even further, he promised David an eternal kingdom and a son to reign forever. To reign forever over the Lord's people for their, their temporal and their eternal good. The Lord's gracious. I mean, the Lord is merciful. The Lord is loving. But here's something I'm not sure we always pause to really think much about. To call the Lord gracious, to call the Lord merciful, to call the Lord loving would be absolutely meaningless if the Lord were not also just. I really want you to get a hold of that. Grace speaks of God not treating us as we deserve. If there's a way that we deserve to be treated and God chooses not to treat us that way, it's because God is just and we have defiled him, we have de defamed him, we, we, have, we have rebelled against him. But he graciously chooses not to treat us the just God graciously chooses not to treat us as we deserve. Mercy, mercy without justice has no meaning because mercy speaks of God being compassionate towards those who have offended him. How can you offend God unless God is just? Love speaks of God embracing us embracing us as his own even while we were yet sinners. Love of God, you know, is not just some, you know, puppy love. The love of God is this 
amazing emotion and love for, for those who are in rebellion against him. How can you be in rebellion against someone if that someone is not just? We led a rebellion in this country. Why did we rebel? Why were we, why do we believe ourselves at least to be justified to have rebelled? Because we believed the king, George III, was unjust. Our rebellion is against a just God. God is just, and yet he is gracious, he is merciful, and he, he, he chooses to love us because he chooses to love us because he chooses to love us for his own glory. Wow. I mean, we learn in the Old Testament scriptures that God is just. He expelled Adam and Eve from the garden. And then he put an angel in front of the garden with a flaming sword to make sure they wouldn't return. Seems like a little overkill, doesn't it? Only if you don't understand that God is just and that Adam and Eve have rebelled. He sent a flood to wipe clean the earth in the wilderness, going back to the wilderness where we're told that, they, that the people of Israel sinned as their fathers had sinned. In the wilderness, all those 20 years of age and older who left Egypt let, were led out of Egypt by Moses, delivered out of Egypt by God's grace and mercy. All those 20 years of age and older, except for two, they died in the wilderness because of their faithlessness. They never entered the promised land. He troubled Israel because of David's egregious sins. He tore from Solomon the 10 northern tribes, he sent the Assyrians to annihilate Israel because of the sins of the kings and, his, and of the people. And why in the world would I, you know, why in the world would I take the time to rehearse all of that? Because only, listen to me, people of God, listen to me, only if you understand that God is just Are you awed? Awed to hear the good news that while the wages of sin, the wages of sin imposed by a just God, the wages of sin is death, the gracious gift of God to those who embrace Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King is a blessed and eternal life. Now you can yawn about that, and many of you do. And you do that, be patient with me here, you do that foolishly, and you do that ignorantly. Because if you understand that God is just, that message, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
That is stunning news. That is glorious and, and awesome news. Why did Luther write that great hymn that we sang this morning? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. What, why has the church of Jesus Christ sung that hymn with passion for 500 years? Because in the church are those who understand how awesome is this truth. How awesome is the message of this gospel. Only when you understand that God is just. Are you awed to learn that he graciously gifts you with faith in Jesus so that you might know that you are loved by God, the creator of heaven and earth, that, that your sins were laid upon the sinless one, that he died to pay the penalty for your transgressions, that he, as we confess this morning, that he adopted you into his family. You are the child of God. You belong to the royal family. He has delivered you from the dominion of darkness. He has brought you to live both now and for forever within the walls of his kingdom, those walls named salvation. Knowing the unfolding of the history of the progression of God's covenant redemption. You thrill to understand that Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the promised son of David. That Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. That Jesus is the promised man born of woman. That Jesus is one at one and the same time, God incarnate, the, the very Son of God. That Jesus now loves you and claims you as his own. He now reigns over you. He now promises to be with you always. He tells you that he will never allow anything in heaven, on earth, or in hell to separate you from his love. And he promises that he will come again so that you might be with him forever. That's why you need to understand the history to be warned, to be sobered, to delight, and therefore to be encouraged. Fathers, you need to learn from the history of God's Old Testament covenant people that there is a sobering lesson here. As goes the leader, so most often goes the people. The Lord commands you to be the servant leaders of your homes, loving your wife as Christ loves the church, his bride, for whom he willingly laid down his life for her temporal and eternal blessing. 
Fathers, you who are husbands, do you hear me? Do you hear the word of God? You want to be part of a church that turns this world right side up? Well, here's where you begin. You don't begin by learning four spiritual laws that you can go out and share with somebody else. Here's where you begin. You begin by loving your wife as Christ loved the church, his bride, for whom he willingly laid down his life for her temporal and eternal blessing. Fathers, you are to love your children by, by bringing them up in the, the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, not all fathers, are, not all fathers have the same gifts. Your gift may not be verbal. Words are important, but at least equally important, if not more important, is how you live your life. My father did not communicate to me a lot of verbal instruction. That wasn't his gift. He wrote Bible verses on three-by-five cards that he, would, that, that he thought appropriate to that particular moment in my life and placed them on my desk for me to find. He wasn't verbal, but the example of his life spoke volumes. I knew without a moment's doubt I knew, as we're told in Deuteronomy 11, 18, that the word of the Lord was laid upon his heart, was the focus of his mind, was the motivation for almost all he did and said. At home, away from home, morning and night, I knew that serving and pleasing the Lord was his burning desire. I never have, I cannot think of a moment in time when I ever doubted that to be true. That speaks volumes. That's the most eloquent theological statement that anyone can ever make. And I pray that that would be true for you. Because as we see in the history of Israel, as the king did, so did the people. As we will see later, Judah had a few good kings. I tell you that quickly because it's, it is interesting that under those few good kings, the, the example of those few godly kings actually does impact the people, motivate the people to at least for a, a generation or so to serve the Lord. Makes a difference. But in Judah, as was continually true in Israel. When kings embraced lies and immoral lifestyles, so did most of their people. Now we all mess it up. We, we all get it wrong. We all don't love our wives as we really should. And we all 
Don't deal with our children precisely as God would have us to deal with them. What are you going to do about that? You're going to confess it. If you're a father and you're a husband, if you have never gone to your wife to confess your idiocy, you're a liar. If you're a father and you've never stood before your children to confess to them how badly you just handled that particular situation that arose in your family, you think they don't know? You think they don't know that you're just a denier of the truth? Confess it. Ask their forgiveness. Ask the Lord's forgiveness. The Lord is gracious. He is merciful. He is loving. He forgives. He wipes clean the slate. Now, you know, wives are not always good about wiping clean the slate. And you wives know that that's true. When you keep bringing it up and bringing it up and bringing it up and bringing it up. God wipes clean the slate. Children, children may become a little, a little puffed up with their own insights and self-importance as they see their father's failures and they just go, huh. Well, go talk to them. It's an, it is a moment in time that will never come again to sit down with them and to say to them, you know and I know I got that wrong. I sinned. I'm asking the Lord to forgive me. I'm asking you to forgive me. Can we start again? Can we do it again? Ask my grown children sometime about gathering around the family kitchen table so dad could come in with his mea culpa. You know, with his, okay guys, here I am again. It wasn't once, it wasn't twice. They may have lost count. But that's what you do. Why? Because who you are before them is of eternal significance. Love your wife. As Christ loved the church, his bride, for whom he willingly laid down his life for her good. Love your children. Instruct them. Discipline them. And set before them the example of a father whose heart is set upon knowing the Lord and doing his holy will. God is just. That should properly sober us. God is merciful. He's gracious. He's loving. He's forgiving. But you have to own your sin. You have to confess it. And you have to in his strength, repent, turn away from it, and turn back once more to the Lord.
If we as a church, if that becomes the pattern, and it is the pattern in many of the homes, I look around, I look at you, I know it's the pattern of many in, your, in many of your homes. If that is the pattern that would dominate the church of Jesus Christ, I'm not sure I can imagine what he might do. May your children have no doubt that as for you and your house, you're going to serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, teach us, encourage us, forgive us, restore us, restore to us the joy of our salvation, and bless, bless these homes, bless these fathers, and may they be a blessing to their wife, to their wives, and to their children. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.